the physical world is a beautiful thing. Um, the body is a beautiful thing. Um, the, you know, our game, the athletic body, the body in motion um, that is working hard and, and um, making the most of what it can do is absolutely something that can be honored with clothing that um, isn't first and foremost about the way it looks, but is absolutely about the way the body feels. That was Sally Bergeson, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 97. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one thing, telling the truth about our lives. Even if it's confusing or messy, even if we don't understand it, even if we don't like it, even if we're embarrassed about it, we tell the truth. No one's trying to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. You won't find any 10-day, six-step life hacking plans for anything. I'm totally over that approach, and I bet you are too. Life is complicated and messy and painful and beautiful, and we deserve more than a bunch of life hacking tips. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others. And we dive deep into topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, courage, change, and everything in between. This is an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which, warning, often means we use adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way. With this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads, you won't hear any sponsor promotions. This show is 100% listener-funded, which means that we have complete freedom from corporate or outside influence. Awesome, right? Instead, these honest conversations are made possible by people like you, who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. If you're already supporting the show, thank you. You're the best, and I'm so ridiculously grateful that you're helping me to bring more real talk and honesty into the world. And if you haven't joined our support squad yet, here's where I invite you in and ask for your help. But first, let's talk about beliefs. I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a truly diverse group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. When you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off-limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. As a thank you, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our virtual book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series, and you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live, the small fun in-person event series that kicks off in London in early August. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your support means everything to me. It truly does. And it's what will allow me to continue making new episodes for you as we join together to build a kinder, more open, and more truth-filled world. And now, let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Sally Bergeson. Sally is the founder and CEO of Wazelle, a 25-plus person team based in Seattle that offers a strong collection of premium athletic apparel, 
sponsors professional women athletes, and is growing an all-paces, all-abilities running team that connects thousands of women around the world. In 2007, Wazelle was founded out of Sally's two great passions, running and design. From the company's middle school sports bra donation program to its buy and for women designs, Wazelle's mission is to help women discover the strength and sisterhood of sport. In this episode, Sally shares stories from the early days of Wazelle and talks about trying to grow a company while staying true to who you were when you first went into business. We talk about marriage, feminism, speaking up for what you believe in, even in the face of criticism and backlash, and how stress and pressure can be viewed as a privilege. I particularly love what Sally had to say about boundaries and letting yourself be obsessed with something. That was super refreshing and comforting for me. I so enjoyed this conversation, and I hope that you do too. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Sally, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Nicole. Happy Friday to you. To you as well. It is, I woke up this morning and I was like, oh my God, it's Sally Day. I've been so excited to interview you. I... I mean, it's it's funny when I think of my history with running, so much of it is wrapped up in Wazelle. Like for someone who did not, you know, was not an athlete as a kid and started running as an adult, I never had the experience of a cross-country team or like a group or a club. And I don't know what mm-hmm. you created. It was nice to feel, you know, back when I was on the volley team, like being a part of something, um, I don't know, really meant a lot to me. Oh, yeah. Well, that's exactly, I mean, it's exactly my story as well. I ran briefly in high school, but I never ran in college. And so it really wasn't until after college that I was searching for and and found in other forms, uh, um, some kind of team. And um, so I'm, you know, thank you for uh, being part of that. And uh, it's always evolving. And um, yeah, team is a really powerful idea. Yeah, I agree. And something that is often hard to come by, right? So it's it's nice when you do find it. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah, I, I like I said I don't I don't feel like I ever got enough of it or the type of team environment that I that I came to learn to love with running when I was younger and I I often wished that I had had it or had been able to find it sooner. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Berkeley, California. You have teenage daughters, right? Yeah, correct me. I do. Yes, I do. I have two teenage daughters. um, One who is now a woman, (laughs) eighteen years old, uh, and then a fourteen-year-old. So the the older is is entering into college this fall, and the fourteen-year-old will be going into high school as as a as a fresh person. Who were you as a teenager? Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) This sounds like a good story. (laughs) Let's start there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, when I say Berkeley, California, and I always kind of like say it in a little bit of a loaded way, because I think it's, um, I mean, you just have to try to orient your brain around what was going on in the world and specifically in that part of the world uh, in the 70s. Um, I was born in 1968 and, you know, really had my youth in uh, a time that was um, very tumultuous, um, very um, rife with cultural change and kind of interestingly a little bit almost like we feel today where there's just these 
kind of large currents of um, political activity and um, change in culture and change in women and how they view their roles in the world and in society. So um, on a very like fundamental level, like growing up, it was actually a little bit crazy. Um, I looking back on it now, I realize how how crazy it was, like just for example, like so I grew up, my parents divorced when I was four. Uh, my dad actually raised my brother and I, and he was worked full time as a lawyer in San Francisco. And, you know, my brother and I were pretty much just like, I mean, I like to say like wild horses without a fence. We're, <laughs> we're just um, kind of raised ourselves in a way. Um, and that can be both a really beautiful thing, because I think you get you get strong people who figure out survival techniques and um, interests and learn to use their brains in kind of a street smart kind of way. Um, but the downside of it is just, and now that I'm a parent, I, you know, I can see that more clearly is just the, you know, the, the idea of wild or wildness isn't always great for kids. You know, mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, kids, uh, need structure. Uh, they need guidance. Um, they don't necessarily need helicopter parents because that, you know, that swings too far the other way. Um, but but structure is good. And and so I would say growing up in Berkeley um, was just a little bit a little bit you know potentially too wild. Like I just didn't have parents in my life that were kind of guiding me. Um, in a lot of the directions that you see kids being guided today, like whether that's into sports or into the debate club or into arts or drama and such. So I made a lot of trouble. Yeah, <laughs> made a lot of trouble and turned out excellent. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> what messages do you feel like you got about, I don't know, feminism or female empowerment, um, anything in there when you were growing up? Well, I have a very strong mother um, and you know, she married my dad when she was 18 and he was 27. So right there, you can see that there was an imbalance of power an imbalance of wisdom. Just it's not a great like starting point for a relationship when somebody that's that much older. I mean, I know there's lots, lots of examples probably out there of it working out, but at least in their case, um, it didn't work that well because she had kind of come from such a um, protected background. She was raised Catholic. And, and so I think when the late sixties hit, she was just like, Jesus Christ, like, what am I doing? Like, I need to be out there, like, you know, like learning who I am and like exploring and having adventures and, you know, this man that I married is awesome, but, you know, I don't want to, like, settle down now for the rest of my life. I'm only, like, 24. So, um, so in that sense, like, I, she had a very strong uh, feminist um, direction in that she, she got woke uh, to her own um, kind of, I don't want to say, like, you know, marrying my dad wasn't necessarily a bad decision. Having kids young wasn't a bad decision. But I think she she felt like there was still a lot more living to do. So, you know, even though I went through periods of maybe feeling, you know, like um, regret about that or anger at her or whatnot, I still feel like she set a good example for me of um, kind of following your heart in doing the hard things that you need to do, even if that means managing um, some complexity and um, other heartbreak uh, in other areas. 
Yeah. So your parents then getting divorced when you were pretty young and everything that you just spoke to, how do you feel like that, I don't know, shaped how you think of marriage? Hmm. That's a good question. I, you know, there's all kinds of theories about kind of what you look for in a partner and such. And, and I do think with my husband, he's very like, I mean, we joke (laughs) inside the family, even we're like, you know, there's the race car and the station wagon. And he's like, I'm the station wagon. And uh, he's, um, he's like one of the most like reliable people I've ever met, just kind of very steady. And um, I think that that meant a lot for me um, growing up because I did kind of come from like such um, chaos um, and saw the downside of having a very, um, you know, lack of, again, lack of structure, lack of guidance. And I, I, so I was seeking that. And um, so that's an interesting thing too, like as a like, you know, a feminist or, you know, strong woman or somebody who like, you know, believes in like independence and, and, and free will and free thought that I would have that kind of desire to, um, be with somebody who, um, provides that kind of like reliability. But that's, that's like, I think the, the tension between the two of us that kind of works in a, Mm -hmm. in a crazy way. I know. I think about that too. That's, I mean, what you just described is similar to how I feel about my husband. Like he's much more grounded and reliable and stable and all of those things than I am that I think if we were both the way that I am, it would just be a disaster. (laughs) So it's nice to have, like you said, that tension. Sometimes it's tension in the way of friction of, uh, you know, feeling constrained or feeling whatever, you know, but then on the other hand, it's like, oh, this is actually incredible that this person like keeps me, (laughs) you know, grounded. Grounded. Yeah. And it's so important, right? Like when you're just in that crazy or in that like mode of searching or, you know, or just fucking frustrated about something to be able to go and have that like mini breakdown, do whatever you do. I tend to cry. Um, and, uh, that, that you have like a voice of reason who's like, you know, look, (laughs) let's step back. Mm -hmm. Let's kind of look at the big picture. So I, yeah, I have, um, even like you said, it does create tension. Like I've been like, you know, I need to be with my, I need to be with my girlfriends. I need to be with my women. I need to be free, you know, <laughs> like, oh, yeah. just really like, and you know, it's good. We've gotten to a place where that's less harmful than it used to be. What do you mean? Um, just meaning like, I think in our early days of marriage, I would say that kind of thing. And he would be like, you know, like gripped with insecurity over like, I'm leaving him, you know, I'm, I'm going too far afield. I'm, you know, uh, creating a situation where he may have jealousy or whatnot. And so I I think, you know, uh, this month, actually, we're going to be celebrating our 22nd year of marriage. And so I think when you're with somebody that long, you go through a lot of those conversations and those tensions and those blow ups and those makeups and those figuring it out and learning to talk like adult humans to each other. Um, and, and that takes a while. Okay, so here's my really selfish question. So 22 years versus I've been married three years. What is your advice? (laughs) Tell tell me all the things. I hope you can tell from this conversation that I don't really have it figured out. It's just like, I mean, like in life, right? Like keep going. Um, There was actually, there was a really good um, New York Times editorial about... um, Get, being married and getting married. And I, I can't remember if it was like in June because that's like when the time people are, you know, typically getting married. But it was really funny. And it was it was basically just about, um, 
you know, kind of poking some holes in that kind of idealized vision of marriage, of it being this kind of ever and after. And I think, you know, most rational humans know that that's not, um, not, not only is it not like a real thing, but it's not even really something to aspire to because it kind of loses all of the complexity that we love in, in human relationships. But um, essentially the, the gist of it was like, how do you stay married you don't get divorced. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, I've definitely like had those kind of funny moments of like, um, but you know, I will also just because, you know, we are having this conversation and at a coffee shop. Um, uh, my husband and I separated uh, briefly um, for a while when, you know, I, we just were at loggerheads and I just didn't feel like it was going to change and get to a place that, um, where we could both be happy. And it wasn't that long of a separation. It was only a couple of months, but it actually um, created kind of a reset uh, for our marriage that, you know, thus far, knock on um, wood, I don't know, I don't have wood in front of me. I have got like bad IKEA furniture, um, but, <laughs> uh, you know, has lasted uh, thus far. So, you know, I'm not recommending separation, but I, I, I also say like, you know, you have to like be willing to kind of look at those very, severe kind of drastic um options and see if you can like do that and come out the other side yeah i love that i mean there's so much that's refreshing in what you just said and i mean even me asking for advice is sort of tongue-in-cheek because i mean do we any of us have any wisdom no one has anything figured out right it's more just sharing personal experiences but i think there's actually just something really comforting in even that you sharing that like we put marriage on such this pedestal, right? That's like in this really tight box. And, you know, Mm -hmm. to hear, oh, someone had a separation or this happened or they had to do this to make it work. Like all of that Mm -hmm. is very real to me. And the more you dig even a little under the surface and people are willing to share stuff, that stuff like that is almost everyone's experience. And yet we want to pretend that that's not the case, which isn't doing anyone any favors. Right. It's the happy, shiny people, the whole, you know, the sort of false representation of um, what like life looks like. And yeah, it's, it's rough out there, babes. You got to just like stick together, keep your head on your shoulders, have lots of conversations. Yeah. I don't know. It's, you know, and just, and, and be okay with, um, you know, also getting to a place where I don't know, maybe like walking away from a bad marriage is not, not the world's worst thing, especially Mm -hmm. when it means you're going to be able to make strides in your life and they're going to be able to make strides in their life. Like I think for a lot of times for both people, it just ends up being the best thing. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot lately about sort of the like moral absolutes that we put on ourselves, like, you know, X outcome is absolutely not okay. So I can't even entertain that. And I find Mm -hmm. that I actually do better when everything's an option, right? Like, well, getting I mean, in this context, getting divorced is an option. It's like when people say, you know, failure isn't an option. Failure is always an option. I know. I'm so glad you say that because I I actually always say that. I'm like, when people say failure is not an option, I'm like, well, actually it is. And, you know, might not even be the worst one. Right. Totally. (laughs) So what's something that you wish people were more open and honest about? Oh, wow. Open and honest about. I, I... I think that one of the things, you know, maybe it leads into like a lot of the conversations that we've had at Wazelle lately and kind of that dynamics that you see online um, is that I think as, as humans, and it's not just women because it's both women and men do this, there's a real 
there's a real, um, I keep saying the word complexity, but it's kind of where my brain is going right now around our existence and around how we feel about the world and even how we feel about each other and about our journeys together. And, you know, kind of maybe going back to the happy, shiny people comment, I think it's okay to have um, uh, either, I don't want to say like carry grievances, but to like experience like loss or grievances or feel like negative about something. And sometimes you just have to like carry it and be in it and then like wear it out. And I think almost like, I don't know why I just thought of eating disorders, but sometimes eating disorders just wear out, you know, because because <laughs> they're just like you outgrow them. And I think sometimes negative behaviors or thoughts about things are like that too. But so I guess when the question to honesty is like, I think just particularly for women, I think there's this construct of we um, need to be um, pleasant and nice all the time. We need to, um, you know, be positive. And, you know, in general, I think that's always a good, you know, a good thing to shoot for. But, you know, if you're feeling really banged up about something and you are angry or frustrated, um, it's okay also to um, just embrace that as, as where you are and what you're kind of, you know, moving through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about this a lot in terms of the way that we sort of culturally, I don't know, almost like fetishize happiness that it's mm-hmm. there's it doesn't allow I mean, p- feeling happy, that's is great, but it's just one emotion. And when you make one emotion better than other emotions, it kind mm-hmm. of I don't know, I feel like it leads us to stifle exactly what you're saying that it's not okay to have grievances. It's not okay to be angry. It's not okay to be like not in a nice mood or to not want to smile or, mm-hmm. you know, and then mm-hmm. there's something wrong with me that I'm not this, you know, this other way. Yeah, I agree. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that's why that's probably where, you know, I, there's some things that are good for online world. And then there's some that are just better for like interpersonal relationships. And um, I think sometimes because online becomes has become so pervasive in people's lives that they confuse those things. And so, you know, having a a circle of people in your life where you can really um, process, um, you know, some of that stuff is is just probably a better venue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would love to dig into the origin story of Wazelle a little bit. And I, I find myself wanting to ask, why clothing? Like, why, what is the power <laughs> of clothing for you? Like, where did that come from? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And actually, I, it's funny, the origin story. I sort of had a story that I was used to telling. And then since then, I've thought deeper and longer about it. And I, so when I was a kid, like I was saying, kind of growing up in this wild existence, um, we, we just had like, you know, we weren't dirt poor, but we certainly didn't have um, money to throw around either. And my dad being a single parent, you know, even though like you think, oh, attorney, he's making a lot of money. He was actually doing civil rights work and doing prisoners rights work and doing a lot of (laughs) uh, legal work that actually doesn't pay very well. So we were uh, pretty, um, pretty hand to mouth. And, but I remember even since an early age, probably started in middle school, but then continued into high school, I had this fascination with the feeling of clothing. So I used to like to go because it's Berkeley, and it's the Bay Area, there was always kind of like, this cadre of like, boutique shops that carried kind of brands you'd never heard of that were like from Europe or somewhere else and, you know, kind of curate that selection. And I would go into these shops, and I would, I would literally just like feel the fabric. And 
I was like fascinated with hand feel as like an idea of like, what is the silk feel like? Or what does this quality of silk feel like? Or what does this knit feel like? Or what is this um, wool or cotton or synthetics or whatever it was? And um, it, it just, it meant like everything to me. And it like also what I became fascinated with was like not only the fabrics, but then like the construction and the detail of like how it's sewn together. So that quality construction and I just like obsessed over it. I would spend money I didn't have to buy something that cost way too much because it was like the one thing. Um, and it meant like so much to me. I don't know why, um, I've always like looked at clothing that way, but I've always had this feeling of like, I want to buy the the best. And, and it's funny cause I'm not like a big, like I don't buy, you know, Louis Vuitton and, you know, Lanvin and, you know, Dolce and Gabbana, et cetera, et cetera. But I have always kind of wanted very quality, um, garments or as, as one friend told me once, like buy the best and you only cry once. So, um, <laughs> So, so that was one like meaning of clothing to me. Um, I think as I got older and I got, got into athletics, I learned the meaning of clothing as something that you put on your body to enhance your performance, but also to send this lightning bolt to the mind and, you know, enhance how you think about not only what your body can do, but what your mind can do and the connection of those two things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been thinking, I had this sort of realization, well, not really realization, something I'm talking about with my therapist, this is always the start of a good story, right, <laughs> is um, my mother was always really, inter- and is really interested in fashion, and, you know, always has been, and I was like her little doll when I was little, you know, and she was yeah, very into yeah. doing my hair and doing all these things, and I, I think I hit a point of just basically complete other end of the spectrum rebellion from that, and I don't know, I sort of developed this feeling of it's shallow to care what you look like and sort of a moral superiority about I don't blow dry my hair. I don't like there was definitely some kind of ego thing yep. there, yep. which I think is is not unusual or, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not alone in that. And it's right. been interesting to sort of dig into, no, it, it, it is good to wear things that feel good, right? Whatever that means for you. And that there is like definitely a power in you know, putting on something that really like speaks to you or is you or feels good or just like, and obviously all those things in that space, whether it's like sensually, the fabric feels really good mm-hmm. or it's, it represents like for me, and I know this is something you can relate to too, just not wearing high heels anymore. They don't, oh, I don't, God. they hurt my feet. I don't really yeah. know how to walk in them. I don't enjoy wearing them. And to give myself permission to, you just don't have to do this anymore. There's, there is power in that. So it's been sort of interesting to kind of come full circle back around to, it's okay to care about what I wear, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. And you're totally right. And like, I've been down that path myself. Like, you have to like rebel against the like unconscionable levels of objectification that we as women deal with in our culture and in our upbringing and everywhere we turn. It is absolutely like a pandemic of um, emphasis on appearance and presentation and, you know, do you look a certain way? And so, so as we kind of develop our minds and we realize that, um, you know, our minds are actually our most powerful tool and then the body, you know, can follow that. We just were like, you know, fuck that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to like tart myself up so that, you know, to be somebody's consumption, Um, you know, it's just not what I'm about. Uh, and so I think like, like full frontal rejection of that is awesome. And then, but I think where, you know, where some people go and like, certainly where I've found myself is that the physical world is a beautiful thing. Um, 
the body is a beautiful thing. Um, the, you know, our game, the athletic body, the body in motion um, that is working hard and, and um, making the most of what it can do is absolutely something that can be honored with clothing that um, isn't first and foremost about the way it looks, but is absolutely about the way the body feels. So if you start from that kind of internal body motion, body feel, how it's connected to your mind first and then and then and then move out there from that oh that's a fierce line or like I love that detail because it really accentuates like her scapula or like you know um these parts of the woman's body that are like super fierce but that you won't see in any TNA show in most of like brands advertising Mm -hmm. so I think that's the that's like the full that's the kind of the full circle I've made with kind of what you're talking about in terms of and I respect women that just say F you. Like, I'm just like, I don't, I don't give a shit. Like, I'm going to, it's all about what's between my ears, not what's between my legs, as a sister friend in college used to say. Um, and I'm going to go my own path with clothing, and, and it means not buying into any of it. Mm-hmm. Was there a specific moment or conversation that you remember that really led to you deciding to start Wazel? I, well, a couple of early conversations with um, a good running friend of mine um, who actually started the company with, who did a lot of sweat equity with me, schlepping shit and boxes and God knows what and packing stuff. And God, we used to, I used to take like bag loads of web orders to the U.S. Postal Service kiosk and like stand there and hope nobody would come behind me because I had like 20 packages to like punch out on that machine. Um, But when I first ran with her and I first mentioned Wazelle, I was just like, I have this idea. I really want to make these shorts. We're on this long run. We actually had a friend's wedding up in um, Vancouver, uh, Canada. And she, her first comment to me was like, with what money? Um, Which is still a valid question. (laughs) Um, and I just, I, but I, it's funny, I always believed that if the idea was good and we got some momentum, the money would come, um, which, you know, by and large it has. Um, the second though, probably more importantly was with my husband, um, who getting back to that like person in your life, who's your sounding board and your, your, um, partner, advisor, friend, all of those roles. Um, I, I ran it by him. I still remember the day too, cause it was like, I was all like, jacked up with emotion like feeling like oh my god could this really be a thing um and I turned him I was like ah this idea and I just like kind of want to like try and make shorts and you know he's just like many times as he has done to me in my life when I've had a harebrained idea he's just been like well yeah like you know go for it like I mean give it a try he's he's a very like kind of low-key guy um so I mean those conversations I would say like if he had turned to me and been like you know, for fuck's sake, like you already started one company and it's been a bumpy ride. And, you know, now it's just up to, cause that's what had happened. I had started a, another company. It was a consulting business. Um, but you know, I had made that leap before and I had taken some of those lumps before. So I think he could have come to me and said, I don't want to do that again. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to take another leap where we're just like, you know, just, you know, just, super scared that we're not going to be able to like pay our mortgage. 
Yeah. So you said that you wanted to make shorts. What was your initial vision? Like what need were you trying to fill for yourself or like what, why shorts, why running shorts? Well, um, they really sucked. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, actually I read a really great, um, New Yorker article about an inventor, you know, somebody, and and he had a line in there about like, if you want to like, think about a new invention, just ask yourself, look around the world, what sucks? Like, you know, and, you know, and then think about like what you might be able to do to, you know, pose a solution to that, that question or that problem. I mean, for me, it was, you know, it's not a radical, like, you know, it wasn't like, you know, taking taxis to Uber or anything. It wasn't that kind of disruption level, but I think it was a very, very real problem that still exists today because the bottom line is that running shoe companies make running apparel and they make all their money making shoes, not apparel. Apparel is kind of the afterthought. So I think that that condition was very much in existence then. And it was just like poor fit, poor quality, um, just bad silhouettes, like lots of ballooning, um, all kinds of like crotchy fabric and chafing problems and not really made for um, a woman's body. So yeah, that was just kind of the, the basic genesis of it. What would you say are some of the early, I don't know, moves or decisions that you made with the business that it really contributed to success? Like, what do you think you did right early on? Oh, well, one thing I would say about kind of the origin story that was interesting was I, um, I don't know that if I, I would have had the confidence to start Wazelle if at the same time I hadn't also had a couple of consulting projects where I got to see the inside of Nike and the inside of Reebok and meet people there and do some work where I got to see kind of what their business insights were and how they looked at the markets. And I, and as an avid runner, right, I had been like a crazy competitive runner, um, you know, not, not by any shape or form at the elite level, but, you know, running fast in my local area. And I just, I got in there and I was like, man, these guys, like, they don't have any secret sauce. I mean, yeah, they, they know some stuff and they've got a lot of money and they've got their heritage. They've been working hard at this for a long time and I don't take any credit um, away for those things. But, you know, when I was really looking at the data that they were using, I was like, damn, like when it comes to women and women runners, I know what's going on better than these guys do, mm-hmm. at least in the in the project I was working on. So I, I really felt like that gave me a boost um, because I think just like we were talking about with like the monolithic idea of marriage, people get a monolithic idea of corporations and kind of the knowledge that they have. And the, the truth of the matter is that they don't necessarily have any better knowledge than you do. In fact, they probably have less than you do because you're actually like, you know, day in and day out using the product, super engaged, really like just living um, that area that you, you are engaged in and are passionate about. Mm-hmm. So that gave you the confidence to to go, and then from there, I don't. I'm I'm just so curious, like, because obviously, I, of course, Wazelle's not as big as, like you said, Nike or any of those other companies, but it to me does still seem like really, I don't know, like it's big, it's rolling, it's happening, it's been years. Like, what were the first? I don't know, what was like the first year like? What was the first thing that you did? What were some of those like early days? Uh, well, I spent the first year not even selling anything, obviously just wear testing those first shorts. So, um, you know, that was, you know, I have a, you know, like 
runners all over the world, right? We have our posse. We have our run group that we connect with, that we do long runs with, that we go to races with. And that was very much the culture that I was living and breathing. And so I just plugged in with those gals and was like, hey, I'm doing these shorts. You know, I'll wear them. You wear them. I mean, they're the same pair of shorts. I'll wash them. Don't worry. Like, <laughs> you know, um, so I just spent a lot of time doing that. And then the first year um, actually in business was – Oh my gosh. I just laugh now because I was like, I kind of thought that maybe you'd just be the shorts company. Like, um, maybe we'll just be like the best running shorts ever.com. Like, I, you know, <laughs> it's like, um, I knew better on the naming front, but still. And then it was like, even though I had all this like brand and marketing experience, I would like meet with buyers and they were like, you know, we like the shorts. Um, we're kind of wondering like what else you got? Like, um, do you have a top to go with that? Or <laughs> So, I mean, I just look back on it now and I kind of cringe because I was like, what was I thinking? Like, of course I had to have like a full line. So anyway, the first year was a lot of that. It was a lot of like, well, we got shorts, but yeah, I, you know, I think the whole like kit and caboodle of running clothes needs to be redesigned and improved. So, mm-hmm. um, but I like to say that my ignorance of the garment manufacturing industry was pretty complete. Um, I knew a lot about branding and marketing, and I knew a lot about running, but there was this big chasm kind of in the middle where I didn't really know how to how to make clothes. So I had to do a lot of kind of like hunting and pecking around. I found our first factory down in Costa Rica. I went down and visited them. I drove through, you know, like the rainforest mountains of Costa Rica with cattle, like, you know, crossing the road trying to get to this factory that oh, by the way, had no walls because who needs walls in Costa Rica? Um, it was actually an amazing farm like slash factory where they had like avocados growing in the back with that were like bigger than your head. Um, so I had a lot of those kind of fun, like early, like learning experiences. What was one of the first moments that you thought like this can work? This can actually be something women want this. I'm onto something. Mm. You know, we got, we got traction pretty quickly among kind of like, you know, our core following. Okay, it was my long run group. But, um, <laughs> um, oh, gosh, I don't know, Nicole. I think it's really hard to say. Like, even when you say, like, what else happening? I just, it's not that I, I don't really have, like, imposter syndrome. Because I know women talk about that a lot. And that's very real. Like, I certainly have had that in my career. Um And I'm happy to say I have less of it now, but I still wake up every day feeling like I haven't yet cracked the nut. And I I don't know that I ever want to wake up and feel that I have because I love that idea of like staying as humble as possible and staying as curious as possible. And so when I look at our line and I look I look at the early days, it's kind of the same for me. Like, yeah, we've come a long way, but I want to do so much more. Like Mm -hmm. I just, I see the potential and I, and I, you know, I just, I feel it's like unfinished business. And I don't know, that's kind of a weird place to be because in a way you're like never satisfied. Um, But, you know, but then it's also an okay place to be because you're never satisfied and you're like, (laughs) okay, going on, got to keep, keep climbing. Do you think that's true of you in general? Like hard to feel satisfied, always looking to the next thing? You know, I don't, well, I don't know. I don't even know if never satisfied is the right way to put it because I've definitely had like really nice moments of pause and happiness and um, uh, satisfaction in like a moment coming to completion, whether that's, you know, 
um, Kate Grace getting onto the Olympic team as well as, as our three other athletes in 2016 or going to Fashion Week in 2013 or signing Kara Goucher in 2014. Definitely been these big, big moments that have felt very meaningful. But I think it's part and parcel maybe of the creative mind. Like I think if you're a creative person, and I think most people are, whether or not they like tap into it, um, you're always like the mind moves and it goes to kind of the next thing and you know you just want to keep doing something new and so you kind of put you close what's behind you mm-hmm. um, it's not that you're dissatisfied with it but you're not like this is my you know holding it hoisting it up this is my one shining example of you know my success in life um, because hopefully you know hopefully you're kind of never never feel done. Yeah, I think it's funny. It makes me think of what you were saying before about um, the tension, you know, when you're in a relationship with someone that's really different from you, that's like, it's, it's great. And it's hard. And it's great. And it's hard. It's not like an either or it's a both. And and I feel like this is the same thing, too, where it's like, you're proud and feel good and like know that there's been good stuff and you know excited but also really hungry for more and not totally satisfied and like that kind of tension back and forth I think is actually really lovely and effective and doesn't have to be Mm -hmm. a bad thing yeah no for sure I think you know the flips like like anything though I think there can be a dark side to like also what I've seen I've observed what I see is um kind of some people maybe like and maybe I do this as well, um, but like striving for like this idealized notion of what happiness or success is too. And I think one thing that we talk about sometimes internally here is that, you know, obviously it's the journey is kind of like the big um, cliche, but I like to say it's actually the relationships. Um, And Lesko and I talk about this too. Like sometimes when I'll be working with somebody, I get the feeling that they're eager to use the relationship as a stepping stone to like move to some other like idealized place. The spoiler alert is that that idealized place might not exist Mm -hmm. and that the people that you're with today and the relationships that you have today may actually be the most meaningful ones that you have or have the potential to have. And that investing in, in the people around you is, um, really fruitful and really an amazing like prospect. So, um, so yeah, I guess, I don't know, I kind of did a little tangent there, but, um, you know, sometimes people's heads get filled with like that kind of like big fill in the blank in the sky. And then I think you get older and you're like, oh yeah, it actually was where I was back on the ground. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. So how do you define success for yourself? I want to keep growing. Like, I just, uh, you know, I just, I never, I never want to wake up feeling like, you know, my shit don't stink. <laughs> I, I just, um, yeah, so, so growth. And fortunately, I'm in a really tough industry. So <laughs> <laughs> growth is promised for you. <laughs> Every day, I'm like eaten and bruised. Um so, and human beings are really complex and challenging and awesome. So, like, there again, you know. Um, but, you know, I, success would look for me, like, I think my, some, of my, some of my weaknesses are, like, um, um, I don't, like, I'll kind of get to a place with somebody, maybe 
and then where there's like a parting of the ways and then I kind of like put them in a box and that box is kind of in my past. Like I'm either, I'm always wanting like, like in the present and moving forward and kind of to that, maybe speaking to that, like relationships and kind of um, investing. I, I want to do that less. I want to, I want to evolve relationships rather than isolating and closing off and moving past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, this isn't necessarily directly related to to what you're saying, but something that I've been thinking about, one of the shirts, I don't know if it's currently for sale or not, but that I know you have made in the past has um, part of one of my favorite quotes on it, the Billie Jean King one, the pressure pressure is a privilege. Mm -hmm. Talk to Mm -hmm. me about that, like how you handle pressure or just this idea that pressure is a privilege. Yeah. Well, the quote was actually, um, I had, had only heard of it for the first time um, from Missy Park, who is the founder of Title IX. So they're a, a women's, you know, athletic retailer. Um, and she mentioned it to me. And then I like looked it up and kind of learned a little bit more about it. Well, Billie Jean King is just awesome. Like, let's start there. <laughs> she, <Right. Yeah. laughs> she's such a ground groundbreaker, um, early leader, you know, completely set new, uh, standards for how women could be in their lives and as athletes, which I think is still standards that we're fighting against, which is essentially the formula of the athlete woman as, you know, pretty to look at talented, great thumbs up, but then that's it. You know, we don't really necessarily want to hear any more from her, you know, and it's just like, we just don't want to look at her. So that's the problem just in sport across the board. And so I think Billie Jean King came along and, and basically was like, yeah, no, that's not me. And that's not my story. And that's not my strength. And that's not what I'm going to bring to the world. So there's that. Um, and then pressure is a privilege. Yeah. I think that there's this, um, people get stressed out a lot. You know, you hear <laughs> a lot about just like, oh, just like, I'm so stressed. I've just got like so much, like whether it's work or it's, a, it's um, you know, and stress is a real thing. And there's definitely unhealthy levels of it. But uh, it's also a privilege. You know, if you have stress in your life, that means you're putting yourself in a place where you're doing meaningful things. And, um, you know, and certainly that's, not always going to be the case. I don't know if you're in a really stressful like job where you have like no visibility or like um, opportunity to move up or, you know, you're feeding some kind of weird negative machine. Uh, I, I can get that. That would be like not only stressful, but also super destructive. Um, but if you are doing something where you feel like you're contributing to the world and doing meaningful work and you're under stress, well, hey, welcome to the club. Come on over. <laughs> um and, you know, just uh, don't, um, don't just like let it go a little bit, like just lean into it. It's, it's a little bit like the racers mantra of, I don't know, maybe you've heard of it as well from some of our elites, but this idea when you get to that really hard part um, in your race, I've heard Steph Rothstein talk about it and it gets hard, it gets painful. And instead of just repeating that to your brain, um, it really hurts and it's painful. You're like, okay, welcome. I know you, like we've been together before, like we're going to do this and I'm going to get through it. And, and so I think, you know, a little bit of that more of of understanding of um, stress and pressure uh, is a privilege Mm -hmm. is kind of the meaning for me at least. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to what we were talking about, about 
you know, not overly glorifying happiness or, you know, not overly glorifying a completely stress-free state or a pain-free state when you're talking about running, right? Like the optional suffering that it's, I don't know, like what if it's fine to have pressure and to be stressed Mm -hmm. and to feel pain and race. Like so much has changed for me. I mean, it's obviously something that I'm still working on, but has changed just in being willing to change the perspective, right? Like what if it's not bad that this hurts? What if it's not bad that I feel, you know, pressure to do a good job with my creative work or, you know, it's like we, Mm -hmm. we want to go to this safe haven where there's no expectations and no one's looking at us and there's no, but I mean, you don't make anything meaningful from those places. Yeah. Yeah. We used to talk about that at the design agency where I worked, where it was like, you know, because basically it's creative for hire, right? So you have that creative aspect to it, but you are being paid by a client. So there is that tension between, you know, the creativity that needs to happen and then the deadlines that need to be met. And we used to have some conversations with designers and it was like, you know what, if you want to go do creative work that has no no like opening for criticism and no deadline requirements you can do that and it's called art um and you'll be free uh to do whatever your heart desires but in this environment which is self-admittedly a commercial environment where we have people um paying for your work then you're going to have to come to terms with not only deadlines but the strategic requirements of the brief etc etc so i think it's it's just a really like interesting intersection and I actually think it can be good for creative because it's Mm -hmm. those constraints that um that often produce you know great output yeah no I totally feel the same way just sort of like an open-ended blank page empty schedule it's funny that that has been at times I've thought that that's my ideal you know wouldn't it be nice to just be in the cabin in the woods and Uh, be able to write all day let me tell you I'd be fucking fucking miserable I would produce (laughs) nothing I would find so many ways to organize whatever was in that cabin and like (laughs) the cabin would be spotless I would get nothing done and then you'd be outside like planting a garden because you'd be like well the cabin's good so (laughs) so talk to me a little bit about setting boundaries like how I mean because obviously you you do a lot of things how like tangibly in your real life do you prioritize like what do you say no to how do, how do you think about setting boundaries yeah well and I think it's good because this is very related to what we were just talking about in terms of like pressure because and it um just one comment I'll make to kind of the evolution of pressure you might feel in your life as you get older or as you grow up so And this is just my opinion, but I believe that when people are in their young 20s, when they're kind of looking to make make, uh, something of their life energy, they want to contribute in some way, they want to like find out what some skill is that they have, that that is the time to actually have very few boundaries between whatever that is that you're pursuing um, and your personal life. Um, Because... Uh, chances are, if you lean in fully to it, and you really don't, you know, quote, unquote, protect my weekends and my weeknights, you know, that kind of like, sort of structure, that you're going to come out the other side of that with a level of mastery and skill and leadership that will be incredibly valuable to that next step that you will be able to take and that will probably allow you more boundaries. Um, So that's just... I kind of throw that out there as like a something for, I am not really bought into the idea of millennials and generational 
nyamanana. But, <laughs> um, you know, if, when people do talk about millennials, they're like, oh, they're so entitled, this and that and the other thing. And it's like, well, you know, I don't know. I think humans are kind of tend to be entitled naturally on their own. No, but I mean, I think just to interrupt for a second, I think that's really great advice because it's, I mean, it's again, like the both sides of the coin, right? Like boundaries are important and you don't want to like run yourself into the ground, but also like, what if you do just let yourself fully lean into something, even though, cause that's even against the kind of like pop culture-ness of self-care and obviously self-care is important and like neither of us are saying that it's not but like what if something I'll give you an example so when I went on my long backpacking trip last year which by the way the Roga shorts that I wore were the first pair of shorts Uh, that I bought from you guys in 2013 that I ran literally hundreds of miles in washed them a million times wore them all 460 miles and like they're literally still perfect so I mean good job you you did what you set out to do I need a I need a customer (laughs) statement from you on that no problem I mean I'm gonna wear them again on my hike this year so apparently they just never wear out. That's amazing. Thank you. I mean, I don't know how that is as a monetization strategy if I never no, have to buy Rogas again. A, it's not a good monetization strategy, but but thank you. Um, but I thought one of the things that really struck me when I was on that hike, I, you know, in the years before that had really gotten it into my head that I was this super delicate flower. Like I had to go to bed really early. I had to eat these specific things. Like there were so many boxes that I need to check in order to be okay. That was the story that I was telling myself. Right, and I was right. on this hike, which again is not a sustainable lifestyle, right, right. but it was, I was like barely sleeping. I was eating the best I could, but like mostly I mean, basically a lot of picky bars and like a lot of like shit basically is what I was eating. And like, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I was like rationing water. I was so much physical activity and I was fine. Like all those boxes I thought I needed to tick, right? Like all these like boundaries I thought I needed, I didn't actually need. And so it was like a wake up call for me of, okay, you're not such a delicate flower. Like you can lean into stuff. You can have a night where if you're super into something, you work really late and like you're going to be fine. I don't know. Like you don't have to handle yourself with such like precious kid gloves. Yeah. No, totally. I, I I agree completely. And it's like, you just have to pulse with that kind of thing. Like, you know, I mean, like Lauren Fleshman, who I know is like a dear friend of both of ours is a perfect example of that. I see her pulse, her light, you know, she will when she's on a tear with something, she'll burn the candle at both ends. Um, and you know, that wonderful poem, it will not last the light, but oh, my foes and oh, my friends, it gives a lovely light. And I still remember learning that in high school. And one of my favorite English teachers talking about the beauty of burning the candle at both ends and that it gives a lovely light. And so I, you know, I just say, you know, especially like find the thing and then burn yourself down. Yeah, I sorry, I'm just like having a moment of like, that's it's such it's such good advice, because it's so not what we're told. And and again, like, I feel like I keep having to put disclaimers on things. I'm just going to stop that because I know you're not saying like, everyone burn themselves out, like, like be, you know, working to the ground. No, but like, there is something really beautiful about just like giving yourself over to the things that you're like, really obsessed with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and because the other thing is those things pass, you know, you might not have that same obsession you know, a year from now or two years from now. So using the energy that you have around it um, is really important. The creative light, even uh, in and of itself, it's been shown that it can last well into people's 70s, but it does get a little more, like, um, less flexible. So, I mean, do you think, like, Mozart was like, oh, guys, hey, you know what? I got to have a little me time. I'm going to, like, you know, I don't know, I got to go to yoga. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm not like slamming yoga, but you know, it's just like, 
um, it's, it's just, yeah. So I agree. I just like, I think that like following, following things to even what some might characterize as a somewhat destructive level is something that I recommend you try. Mm, no, this is, I really, I'm so glad you brought this up. I, I mean, I clearly had no idea the conversation was going to go this way, but I think about this all the time. I remember I read an article years ago that was sort of posing the question of like, is the key to success, like basically obsession or like is life balance, like periods of oscillating uh, obsession, right? Yeah, and the, the idea being like, if you're training for a marathon, especially if let's say it's like your first marathon, the amount of emotional energy and like timing and scheduling, like you're thinking, about, I mean, I remember for me when I was training for my first marathon, that was like everything. Thing. It was all I thought about. Mm-hmm. It was like all my plans mm-hmm. were around that. And it was certainly not a quote, you know, balanced situation, unquote, whatever right. that would look like. And yet that's what it takes. You know, if I was to get serious about, I don't know, learning Italian or doing anything out or even with the podcast, like if I'm this is like I'm recording this week. So that means I'm really I'm not really cooking dinner. I'm not really doing a lot of other things, right. you know, right. and that that's I don't know. I think culturally we tell ourselves like there's some stories about how that's not OK. And it's very refreshing. I don't know to hear the alternative. Yeah, no, I think it's, um, yeah, it's worth considering. I, I definitely had some burn it down, you know, times in my early career, like, especially when I was working at the design agency, because agencies are very much kind of, they live and breathe on the lifeblood of like 20 somethings who are willing to like crank all night and throw away their weekends and travel, etc. And I, and I still remember one time I was, you know, I was, I actually, I worked there for five years and it was great. I kind of considered it like my master's in design, but, uh, by the end I was kind of becoming less of a fit in part because I wanted to have babies. So I got, I was pregnant with my, um, first daughter and I was just used to working at this agency and kind of all, you know, kinds of crazy conditions and like late nights and weekends and, you know, and like, um, different places in the office and it was also kind of like a giant art studio where we were like cutting stuff up and like making books and like crafts and everything and I this one stage um, I had this one project which involved kind of this mass like uh, newspaper and print cutting out project and because there wasn't enough room in the main office they rented this empty office space up a couple floors and where I could just lay everything out kind of like just think of like a huge empty like no cubicles just a huge empty office um, space so it was perfect for that like laid everything out I was also eight months pregnant and there was like there was just nothing in this space there was like no chairs there was no stools there was no like you know there was just nothing. And I was like, every day I was like squatting, cutting, lifting, kind of like moving stuff around. And I just remember by like the end of the week, I was like, okay, I have a feeling that this is maybe a day when I need to like step in and ask for some like boundaries. (laughs) I was just like, I was like in pain. Like I was just like this big belly, like, you know, Um, so having said all that stuff about burn it down, it's like, you will find that there's times where you're just like, you know, I need, yeah, this is real. Like I'm, I mean, I'm eight months pregnant and I'm doing like squats all over the place, like cutting paper. And it's just like, this is stupid. Like I need to, and I marched down to the manager, you know, and I talked to him and I was like, I need a table and I need a couple of chairs and I am pregnant. And like, I'm just like, (laughs) just got all up in his face he's like oh yeah you're eight months pregnant really but he was like kind of embarrassed like sort of like oh my god like I just like we didn't even really think about it you know nobody's even really been up there except you and so anyway it's kind of 
Yeah. So, so these days, how do you think about boundaries or, or the current, I mean, iteration of your life and work? Like, where are you on that? Burn it down. Give me a chair. I'm eight months pregnant spectrum. <laughs> um, I, I feel fortunate now to be in a place, was I was in a place and I'm in a place where I can have more flexibility and freedom in my, like in my job and in my personal life, uh, more so than I've ever had. I've definitely had like a good, I would say, Gosh, since I started my first business in 2001, that's a long time. I would say um, from 2001 to about 20, you know, 15, that's like a good 14 years of having very kind of limited boundaries between like work and and life and kind of always feeling like I had to be kind of on call and at the ready. It doesn't mean like I've never gone on a vacation or whatnot. You know, I have done those, but um, now I feel like Wazelle's in a great place just in terms of the team we have and just, you know, that people like do stuff, you know, that I used to do and that I could probably still do. Um, although I'm not as good at it as they are. So that's, that's like the biggest, like nice thing that's happened is I'm actually able to have healthier boundaries than Mm -hmm. I've ever had. Um, although I think if you ask my husband, he'd probably tell you I'm full of shit. Um, Um, because there's still just like, he's like, I'll be running out the door to go to some group run, you know, and he's like, he's like, you know, see ya, Sally, see you later. Like, you know, he just, he knows that like, I, I still have to like show up in a bunch of different places to, to keep leading the company, even if it's, you know, a group run. Yeah. So I guess like a different interpretation of this idea of boundaries or just like following the thread a little bit. Something that I love about you is that you're really outspoken. I mean, about lots of things politically, otherwise, you know, sport activism, what's going on and running. Mm -hmm. I'm curious sort of how, how you think about like the role that activism has in the business. Like how do you draw lines around what you are and are not going to talk about in that regard like how much sort of leeway do you give yourself if that makes sense like are there sort of clear I will talk about this I'll only talk about this but not from like the business account or what does that look like yeah yeah (laughs) we had some kind of funny moments early on you know when um you know Mac and I were first running the uh the social media handle and or handles for Wazelle and I started using Twitter in 2009 mostly just because I didn't have any money to market the business so it was like oh here's a free technology like <laughs> I can talk to people like boop 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 anyway um <laughs> that's the best that's the best description sorry my husband works for Twitter that's the best description of Twitter oh I don't have any my, boop 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 I can talk to <laughs> that's I can amazing oh my god okay sorry continue oh, well, my husband also makes fun of me for Twitter he's like why don't you just go outside and stand on the back porch and like yell something. <laughs> <laughs> he's not he's not a huge fan, although he's come around now that all his cycling heroes are on Twitter. Um, but uh, I just remember Mac and I talking about um, social media early on and kind of the role of our voice. And, you know, I've always been very, uh, uh, I've been a proponent of having a voice. You know, I just, you know, for years I used to like consult with brands, big and small, about like basically if you have a brand you have a voice and you should use it and it shouldn't just be this vanilla you know promotional corporate speak like that's it's just it's not relatable like people are not going to be connected to you um if that's what you do and very few of them actually followed my advice so when I had my own brand I actually had to like follow my own you know advice which is always harder to do than telling somebody else what to do um but we had this funny moment where 
I think Mac was sensing that I was uh, a little bit of a loose cannon. <laughs> and, uh, and I think she actually wanted to like protect the company a little bit just um, so she was like, I think she kind of delicately looked at me one day and was like, so what do you think about maybe you having your own handle? on Twitter and like the at Wazelle handle will be like, you know, kind of more, you know, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and, um, and I was just like, I just laughed. I'm like, okay, I see what's happening. It's cool. No worries. Like I'm not offended. Like, you know, that's probably smart. And then, you know, and then I, it was good because then I felt like also like I had more freedom to kind of have my sassy Sally things to say and then Wazelle could be a little bit just more about the brand and about you know not to say that we didn't want to continue to have you know important things from the corporate handle but at least I could be a little bit more of the um, sport activist that I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah I mean I think about with branding too that it's funny when people have some kind of assumption or entitlement to that like everything is for everyone. I remember, I don't remember exactly what the post was, but it was during the election last year. Mm -hmm. And it was, mm -hmm. I mean, it was some, it was like some in some Wazelle Instagram post that was like completely just like it was one of the shirts you made. I, I honestly don't really remember, yeah. but it was like yeah. really not, as far as strong political statements go, it was not yeah. that. And it was yeah. just kind of like fascinating and horrifying to read through the comments of people who oh, were yeah. like, you know, <laughs> you're a business, you shouldn't have any kind of political stand. Like I used to buy things and now I'm not going to. I'm like, you, what's even ha like you, I mean, one, you can't please everyone for sure. Right. But so like, how do you think about that? Like standing up for, I mean, obviously as like a female centered company, right? Like by women for women, sort of yep. like yep. what's, what are your kind of thoughts around that? Yeah, exactly. My thoughts are that we need to have a voice that we can't be a by and for women, uh, company without having a voice because the fighting is not done. You know, like, I mean, you just can't look around the world and say, Hey gals, we've arrived. Like this is it. Um, so, <laughs> Uh, there's there's so much more to do, and so we need to be able to continue to have a voice on the issues that matter with regard specifically to the election. You know, I get it. You know, people have an opinion that, you know, brands like ours should, you know, a lot of the comments that we got were like, you know, stick to what you do, you know, just make clothes, not waves, you know, whatever. And um, I just, I take issue with that. I don't think that they are separate from each other. I think that we put all that like feminist mojo, like, you know, all the stuff we were talking about with power suit into the stitching, into the very fabric of our clothes. And so we look at like what we're doing and the community that we're building as very much, um, pro-woman, woman up, whatever kind of like, you know, phrase you want to put at it. And I don't think any of us can sit here and say and look at our current political climate and our current, you know, regime, which feels like more of like a accurate type of word, mm -hmm. uh, and our current president and say that there aren't some pretty significant problems, you know, perhaps starting with the fact that the you know, United States president is a sexual assaulter you know it's mm -hmm. just like I just like sorry gals but I'm just not gonna just let that go I'm not gonna sort of like pretend uh that all that didn't go down and you know if it if that hurts people um it's certainly not something I'm wanting to happen if they feel angry or disappointed by the brand I mean that wouldn't 
be something I never want either. I want everybody to feel that Wazelle is a place where they're welcome. So, you know, I understand it's a tricky balance, but I think there's also kind of a, there's just a there's just a need um, for female strength and voice right now that um, we're not going to walk away from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's but the other side of that is that then it makes people like me want to be your customers even more, right? So it's like you have to take everything with a grain of you know whatever. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. you said something. I think it was you know around this time frame, one of those posts, and I don't remember exactly verbatim, but it was something like about referencing, well, yeah, I'm a CEO, but like, I'm a person first and I'm a woman. And there was something in that that really stuck with me. Even it's funny. I I had a comment on Instagram not too long ago. You know, I said again, something like relatively, not even that strong politically and um, just about some of the activism work that I was doing. And, um, you know, and she said, because I post a lot about hiking, it was something about, you know, I follow hikers like to get away from politics, like unfollow. I mean, why she needed to tell me that was beyond me. But my response (laughs) sort of in my head and also that I did decide to respond, I, you actually came into my mind, I was thinking, you know, it's funny how we want to compartmentalize these things. Because at the end of the day, like hiking is political, because if I don't advocate for public lands, where are we going to hike? If nothing's done about climate change or like, you know, the the white privilege to be able to do this when, you know, uh, black people are being stopped by police in the car, like you can't, you can't like everything's political. And then like the the wanting to put it into a box and like, I would prefer if you just posted pictures of waterfalls, like, sorry, I'm a person in the world. Like I'm not, you know, so yeah, I don't know. You've done a lot to, I don't know, I think like represent that well that, hey, I'm more than just one thing. Like it's not just about the running shorts. Right, 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 right. Yeah, no, for sure. And yeah, I mean, that's a weird phenomenon too that people have to like actually tell you that they're unfollowing you instead of just unfollowing you. Like, like, um, so yeah, I, it's, it's uh, it's strange times that we live in, and I have become very good friends with the mute button on my in my my Twitter box, which I just love because you can just like stop seeing right. anything from people, and they don't even know. It's beautiful. It's like the best of both worlds. Yeah, totally. So <laughs> switching gears a little bit, um, I'm curious on. I mean, two things. First of all, I'd love to talk a little bit about your role as a leader. Like, how do you think that you've changed and evolved like, as a CEO? Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've come more into the comfort of feeling that I've that those that a CEO role and title feels comfortable to me. I think in the early days it felt like I was putting on like a, a little badge or um, like CEO in small letters and even, and I felt that way about design too, because I just because apparel design was self-taught for me. So I was, I had this like hesitation about saying that that's what I was. And, and I, but I, but I think that like belief in myself and the leadership that may have come out of that at whatever level it may be, because again, like I know I still have so much to learn, is that I've like seen some stuff and and done some things now with with the company that have been really hard, um, you know whether that's you know um, a really difficult conversation with a staff member or uh, a business decision that needs to be made where there's no real clear cut right way to go and you know you're going to make people you didn't disappoint people and and I 
I feel like each of those moments I've had to like literally kind of woman up into them. Like, and I have all the like reactions that we all do to like those, like those scary moments of like sweat and heart palpitation and like nervousness and like stuttering and, you know, and like feeling like I'm going to throw up and, you know, but then, then when you get in there and you're like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do this. So every time I do that, I feel like I develop like a little, like just, I don't know, like a little, um, layer of, uh, of ability, um, in, I don't know if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And, and then, and then for the next thing that comes along, I don't have like as much of a freak out about it. And so, uh, I, I, yeah, I like, like learn, learn by, learn and lead by doing the hard things and not outsourcing those to like other people has Mm -hmm. been like, has been the, has been a great teacher for me. What do you think differentiates a good leader from a great leader? Or what makes someone great? Humility is really high up in my book. I just have a real hard time seeing strong leadership in, yeah, I've kind of mentioned it a bunch, but just in somebody who's just like, I've arrived, you know, I've done Mm -hmm. it. Um, I love it when people who are really, really smart are also really, really humble and willing to connect with lots of different kinds of people. So I, what I've seen from some really, really smart people is that kind of because they're really smart, they sort of realize that they are operating on this kind of, um, you know, I don't put people one above another. I feel all people are equal, but when you've got like skill in a certain area, people kind of start moving in this direction of uh, like a little bit of superiority or like, I don't have to, I don't have to stoop to X, Y, Z, you know? And so that's one of the reasons why here at Wazal, like I take the garbage out all the time because, well, A, we haven't had a janitorial service. Although I will say we just got one recently, but what happens is the garbage builds up so fast that we need to take it out in between um, janitorial service. And I like to get out there and take the garbage out because it's just like nobody is below or I'm sorry, nobody is above taking the garbage out. Like this is like a shared space. And um, so I think when I see leaders do that, that are, that can um, really be like specialized and excellent in their craft and in their skill. And then also like take time to make friendships with all kinds of people in the company, no matter what, you know, entry level versus otherwise that they're in or take the garbage out. I always find that to be very like refreshing and and valuable. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of a story I heard about the chef Thomas Keller about just like being the one to sweep the floors in the kitchen, right? And being this like extremely world renowned, successful chef. And someone Mm -hmm. came, I think, to interview with him or something. I don't remember Mm -hmm. where the story came from. And they were, you know, oh, I'm here. I'm looking for the chef. And it was just the dude just sweeping the kitchen. Yeah. (laughs) There was something about that that I'm like, yeah, like you don't, it's not even about the sort of cliche, not forgetting where you came from, but it's like a level of care. Like you care that the garbage gets taken out. You care what, you know, that that, at that level, which, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. sure. So how do you, or how has it been for you to to grow a company? Because obviously Wazal has grown and expanded, but while still staying true to who you were in the early days or why you started? 
Yeah, that's a good question because I think the natural progression of companies is that as they get bigger, they get more risk averse and they get slower. And, you know, it's understandable why, you know, there's more at stake. Uh, There's more to be lost. There's, you know, and you think about that in relation to sport activism, you know, it's, you know, three years ago when I posted a picture on Instagram with the logos of the companies that the runners actually ran for, as opposed to the company that had branded them for the national team was uh, kind of remarkable, I guess, just like sort of a rogue move. I was, it was a little bit impulsive, but you know, you'd think, I think, I wonder now if I would like I'd do it again, mm-hmm. you know, if uh, at the size that we are. And I like to think that I would, um, but you know, as you get bigger, you get kind of more, you know, people are, there's more people out to get you. And um, uh, either take pot shots or, you know, on a very fundamental level, would love to see you fail. And there, you know, I've now more than ever, I feel like in kind of a weird way, there's like some people out there that would like actually love to, to like hurt us. Uh, so, so you can't, I think the important thing in that is to not let the fear of failure and the fear of, you know, any kind of nefarious forces out in the world kind of change you from your mission and your kind of, um, kind of original ethos of the brand. And that is that we will be, you know, ours is very simple. We build the sisterhood, we improve the sport of track and field, and we design and make great product. Those are like the three things that we continue to circle around. And changing the sport, quite frankly, is going to mean continuing to be, um, you know, a bit of a pain in the ass just because we ask questions and wonder why things are as weird as they are in U.S. track and field and so many times set up to hurt athletes or disincentivize brands like ours from being at the table. So I guess I, I don't have this, the answer to like how to always like have the, the wherewithal to keep doing that, but I hope that as long as I'm at the helm of the company that we are. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with the feeling of, I mean, and I guess this could apply to what you were just saying about, you know, being a small brand with sport activism or, you know, anything, but the feeling of being like too small to make a difference. Does that ever come up for you? Uh, Feeling like like we, our voice doesn't matter because we're yeah, too small. And, and I, I like, I'm not saying that because I believe that it's true, but I think even on a personal level, like when you talk about personal activism, right? Like who am I? Yeah. I'm just one person, right? Or right. like, what's the point of me making this phone call to my Senator or, you know, right. we're a tiny brand. Like, can we actually, you know, go up against, right. you know, the Nikes of the world? I don't know. Like, what do you do when that, if that comes up for you, how do you handle it? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't really think about that as much as I do think about, the particular issue that we have in trying to like um, pose new ways of doing things in U.S. track and field is that um, because of the structural uh, way things are with Nike having this exclusive relationship with U.S. track and field in this way that mingles their private interests with the governing body in a way that's quite frankly, just, you know, regardless of how you feel about Nike or the governing body, when you have those two things together, you have inherent conflicts of interest. And so, you know, that in itself is kind of at the root 
um, of a lot of problems that we have in our sport. And so fighting against that um, kind of with our voice and with my voice um, can kind of, I think it can get marginalized into the, like the, oh, well, they just really don't like Nike. They're just like trying to tear down Nike because, um, you know, they offer the same type of product. And, you know, to that, that's kind of some of the concerns that sometimes I have in my head is just that, because what I know in my heart is that that's not true. I actually kind of grew up, you know, loving Nike and thinking they were, you know, they're the cool brand and they did these great videos and they were like, um, you know, something to aspire to. But it was like getting into the sport kind of a deeper, deeper level and realizing all, all those conflicts of interest. And then, and then also having personal experience where people within that company are like abusing and threatening the lives of people you know, um, you're just kind of like your brain does this, like, what, what, what? Like, <laughs> so that's the thing that, like, I just always want to have that, like, ability to push back against that because it's so wrong and some of it's illegal. And and a lot of it keeps the sport very small and very marginalized and actually in pretty significant decline. Um, so I worry about just, like, being, having my voice kind of look like just, like, I'm, you know, some... I'm just heckling my competition, which, you know, uh, I'm all for competing and I'm all for being like, you know, hardcore with competitors, but I'm not going to come out and be vocal against a competitor because I think that there's room at the table for a lot of different, different brands and different entities to be involved in um, the professional sport. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of, again, a separate topic, but one of the last things that I wanted to ask you about before we um, started to wrap up is I would love to hear more about the sports bra donation program that you guys launched this year. Oh yeah. So that's a super like, like great um, story and also aha moment that we had, um, which I'm like a little bit embarrassed that it was such an aha moment. Cause you'd think that our involvement with girls and women that we would like sort of, it would have already been at the forefront, but we, I uh, read some research that came out last year out of the UK that basically um, did um, this study involving middle school girls, and it quantified this moment in time where girls kind of have a fork in the road, and it happens in middle school, not a surprise, because middle school is super awkward. It's like the pinnacle of awkward about how you feel about your changing body, going from a girl to a woman, and um, that's when if a girl doesn't necessarily feel like she has like the support literally and figuratively of sports bra that she might step away from being active. And it's because she feels self-conscious, she feels awkward. Maybe there's people teasing her about the way her body looks, her breasts are bouncing, you know, like, you know, those are really real issues that girls deal with. And so if we were just like, oh my God, this is like, we make sports bras and there are so many girls in need, like we need to like connect those dots. So, um, you know, we put our heads together and, and planned it and figured out a way to launch it and who to work with and how to do it and how to get the product to the right people. But, you know, cause we definitely didn't want to just hand out sports bras to, um, girls who, you know, have the means to go and buy a bra, any mm -hmm. bra. Uh, we wanted to get them to girls that are living communities where, uh, they don't, have the means and where, you know, it might be the decision between, well, I'll buy you a regular bra or sports bra, but I'm not going to buy you both. Um, so, so that's the program and we launched it in April and it's really just been a phenomenal, um, like response. And I think, but the most phenomenal part of the response is us being kind of on the front line, 
um, talking to the girls because we we really wanted it to be more than just a, like a free you know free product giveaway. We wanted it to be an educational component too, and really help girls understand that you know all breasts are normal, which has kind of become this funny like chant that we say inside it will sell like all breasts are normal. Um, and that your development rate is normal and, you know, breasts are different sizes and that, you know, and that everything is okay and that you should feel okay about your body and just, you know, stay active, stay moving, connect with your girlfriends um, and just really see sports as this lifelong opportunity to um, feed yourself. Yeah, there's something really beautiful in just the simplicity of that. You know, you mentioned being sort of surprised that it was such an aha moment. And yet when I saw you guys launch the campaign, it was an aha moment for me, too, that I mean, I, I wasn't active at that age. But that yeah, it's, it seems it's it's almost like so simple that it would be easy to overlook that that's a reason, you know, maybe why girls would get out of sports at that time and that, oh, actually, there's a very simple solution. Oh, hey, we're someone who can solve this problem. Connect the dots. Yeah, yeah. And well, and the other thing is like, um, again, just kind of from our like uh, modern society kind of commercial world that we live in, you know, there's Victoria's Secret, which has kind of emerged as kind of the leading like bra brand, right? Well, I mean, I don't know about you, but like, I mean, I've raised two daughters and I I just would, like felt kind of horrified that that would be like the place that they were going to learn about what like a healthy female body like looks like and feels like. And, you know, I know that's my opinion. And and, you know, they have their kind of, you know, brand mojo going. But I think by and large, you can say it has been about kind of that whole like presenting the female form for consumption. And their pink brand, which is for tweens, is really just like, you know, get a cute bra and a thong on, you know, so you can like be prepared for, you know, a lifetime of thongs and weird bras and stuff like that. So anyway, I'm kind of like digressing a little bit, but I think that there's a, there's a place, um, there's a hole, uh, of like a missing place for just real straight talk, uh, <laughs> or real talk yeah, right? uh, yes. with, with girls about their bodies. And I hope that, you know, we're a tiny company, but I hope in some way that some of those messages can get out along with the free bras. Mm-hmm. No, I love it. So I think that's a good place to start to wrap up, even though, believe me, no shortage of things that I want to talk to you about. Um, but the way that we end these are with a little segment called Community Questions. So yeah. it's nine rapid-fiery questions that the Patreon, the Patreon community, the, the folks who fund the podcast, um, want me to ask all of our guests this season. Yeah. So you want some random questions? <laughs> I'm ready. So the first one's about routines and there's so much focus on morning routines and how we spend our mornings, but can you share what your evenings are like? How do you typically spend your evening? Mm. I I think that, oh gosh, that can change a lot, but I like a really relaxed evening at home where you're just kind of unwinding with family and sitting around and talking. I mean, summer in Seattle is the most amazing season ever and you know because you've lived in the northwest where you can just kind of sit on your porch and it's like nine o'clock at night and it's still light and beautiful out and the air is soft and so yeah that's that's my my evening ritual right now I love it yeah mine too what do you most want to be known for contributing something for women in culture and the world What's the last thing that made you feel totally awestruck, like a moment that stopped you in your tracks, left you at a loss for words, but in a great way? Hmm. 
gosh, I feel awestruck a lot. I think, uh, you know, again, like living in Seattle in the summer, it's just like I walked into work today and it's like people's gardens are going crazy. And I don't know if you ever have this, but you just like, just look at a flower and you're just like, oh my God, like, yes. that's incredible. That's incredible. Like how, how did that come to be? Like, I don't know. You're just kind of like carried away with this, like, you know, so I, you know, there's the, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot going on in the world as we know, but beauty is like everywhere. Mm-hmm. If you were given maybe an unlimited or at least like a huge amount of money to try and fix one problem in the world, what's the problem you'd choose and what's one thing you would do? Wow. Well, I would, I mean, I would love to see more female voices establishing the new kind of world order as we kind of know it already in our hearts. And I think women know it in their hearts and it's not yet living maybe in the outside world. And I actually think podcasts are a really like important part of making that happen. So I would actually um, invest some money in Unicol to like uh, <laughs> expand this uh, program and, and talk to more, um, more women. Well, that's a lovely thing to say. Hey, I hope that happens. That sounds great. Let's do that. <laughs> okay. Let's um, do it. What's one of the best gifts that you've received? The best gifts. Gosh, that's such an interesting question. Cause I actually, I'm like oddly unattached to anything material, but you didn't say material. You just said gift. So, um, I, and I, to clarify that, I'm just like not a sentimental person with mm-hmm. regard to like physical, um, I'm the same way. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I come from a family of super sentimental people. So it's like a weird contrast. I'm always like, Oh, I don't know where that thing is. And they're like, Oh, you don't know where the, you know, like, <laughs> my mom's the same. Yes. I hear you again. We, we go the opposite, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the, the gift of experience, and time, like, I don't know, like, Wazal, you know, goes to these big, like, sporting events, like, whether it's nationals, where we were just out together, um, the gift of being on the dance floor with you, Nicole, where we just, like, danced our brains out, you Dude, know, so and, fun. <laughs> and it's just, like, you know, that's, like, that kind of thing where people are together, um, and they have a shared love of something like, you know, sport, and, um, we don't get the opportunity often to be kind of under the same roof and having conversations and enjoying each other's company. So, yeah, maybe the maybe the party at Nationals was my my most recent favorite gift. Yes, mine as well. I agree with you. Um, so with the next question, what's one habit that you have been successful at adopting over the past few years that you feel proud of and good about? Mm, that's a good question. I I write a lot in a notebook and my notebooks are crazy. They're like part sketches, part doodles, part to-do lists. And I mush it all together. Like I will do garment sketches with a grocery list and, or some fantastical idea. And I love that. And I move through them uh, linearly. Uh, And so even though I don't really have a diary per se, and I don't journal, I kind of see my habit of documenting what's happening in my life, even if it's kind of on a functional level as like a good, a good habit. Totally. What's one of your biggest fears? Hmm. That I'll not be able to run, that I'll get some, that my knees will wear out. (laughs) Oh, I, a big fear. I, 
Wow, I don't know. I I think I I don't know. There's so many different directions you could go. That whether it's like a personal or professional like fear, I would say like maybe in Wazel realm, you know, I fear you know, n- not being understood for our intent, which is just, you know, happens. Um, if, you know, and especially as we get bigger, I would say professionally, or I'm sorry, personally, oh, sometimes I fear that in being sort of this empire builder of a company, you know, like this kind of warrior into the, like, fulfilling on this dream that I will have, like, maybe missed parts of my kids' lives that I know parents who are more engaged on that level every day, day in and day out, that, um, that they, they've, they've seen a different, you know, potentially more fuller part of their kids' lives. And so sometimes I get, you know, kind of anxiety about that because I know that it just never comes back. You know, they're, they're, you know, I have a daughter going to college and, um, one that'll be out of high school in four years, but, um, you know, I just, uh, yeah, so I, yeah. you know, it's probably just a healthy checks and balances there on the feelings. So the next question is about books. Um, which I don't know, book or two or three books, any type, any genre, would you say have either had a really big impact on you, or that you recommend or reread most often? Mm. You know what's funny is I I never reread books. It's just never. I'm always just like if I've done it, I've done it, and I never go back um, or had the desire to. Um, it was funny that you mentioned books, though, today, because I'm thinking about, like, um, I read this article about Carl Lagerfeld yesterday, and it was like, he's read something like 300,000 books in his lifetime. I don't know if that's true or not, but it was just like, I was just like, oh, my God. And then I talked to people like Lauren, and I bet you're, like, a voracious reader as well. Like, I am, just, yeah. <laughs> just like books, 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 books. And I was an English major, and I just, like, I have gotten out of the habit of reading books Um and I have all kinds of like whatever stories and reasons I've made up for that kind of where I'm at in my life. But it's it's actually kind of a problem, I think. And I'm going to take a pause this summer and read a couple books. So I guess I, one question for me to you would be like, is there a book that you would recommend um, if you know that what my genre is? I tend to kind of like um, autobiog- uh, autobiographical things or biographical things. I loved um, Amy Schumer's book. Um, I love the Steve Jobs book. I love the Andre Agassi book. So I just like those that are like real life people, um, and kind of how they went through different things are more interesting to me than sort of like sci-fi or something. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I have a book list on my site actually, so, um, I can always point you there, but I'm an obsessive reader, but I also love, I love memoirs. I love, um, biographies, all the ones that you mentioned, um, especially the Steve Jobs one. Um, I would recommend one of my favorites. Um, it's by a woman named Maria Hornbacher. It's called Madness. It's her, Mm -hmm. she's an incredible writer, first of all, but it's her, um, basically memoir about bipolar disorder and Ah. it's incredibly good. I mean, it's painful to read at times, but, um, it's fantastic. She also has a book, another book called wasted, which is about her eating disorder. Um, Yeah. I read that. Yeah. Um, so madness is a good one, but yeah, I'm happy to uh, send you any and all book recommendations. I'm, I'm a good one to go to for that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, you know what? I had a story for you. You remember how you were saying you wanted stories? Um, do you want my story before we break or do you want to call it quits? Okay. So, um, because you mentioned mental illness and mental health, and that's you know something that's that's another one of those topics you know that have has gotten more um, 
you know, more exposure, more discussion uh, than ever before. And it's really important that it does. Um, so I was on a run the other day and I was coming from home to work and just kind of running through my neighborhood streets, not, you know, it's facing out kind of per usual. And I'm crossing the street, one of these streets and maybe about 50 yards away from me, there's a woman, um, nothing kind of notable about her. She's like wearing a long skirt and some walking shoes or something. And I get across the street. We're like nowhere near each other. Right. And I hear she turns and she starts screaming, you bitch, you, but you know, like just like cussing me out. And I was just like, you know, of course I'm like snapped out of my, like, you know, daydream reverie of my run. And I, I'm just looking at her and I'm just like, well, hey, is she talking to me? And then I realized that she is talking to me. And then like, instead of just like keeping running, cause I could have, cause I was across the street from her at that point, I just stopped and I like looked at her and I was like, what, what? Like, I just, I just said to her like, what? I'm like crossing the street. Like, what's the deal here? And she, she looks at me and she starts making a beeline across the street, like coming over to me. And I'm like, and part of me is like, oh man, uh, like, like, is this woman gonna like beat me up? Um, and, uh, and then there's like a, there's cars coming up the street and she doesn't even seem to notice them. Um, and so I kind of like gesture to the cars, like hoping that she doesn't get hit, but she, anyway, she makes it across and, um, she gets, she gets right up, right up to me. We're like nose to nose. And I'm like, I look at her, I'm like, lady, I was like, I'm was crossing the street. And then she just looks at me and she, and she just like, okay. And she kind of turns her head down, like sort of passive and like steps to the side. And, and then that was it. And then, and I was just, and then, so I like ran on and, but I, but you know, this is a very like extreme potential end of mental illness, but I'm just like, I realized that she's not well, like there's something going on. She, maybe she was having uh, like episode or something, but it was just kind of like a interesting um, thing where it was a good story for me of like, we don't know a lot of times what's going on with people. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I extrapolated it to the online world because I think I've seen behavior that I've linked to me- more to mental illness than I do to like the person being an asshole. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, if I've decided that their behavior, you know, is really like way out of bounds. Um, and I just think it's a, uh, it's, you know, again, even though I know I'm talking about like an extreme form of like state of mind and there's this, this huge spectrum, including, you know, much that people are just kind of like um, learning to manage and deal with. But um, I think empathy and a little bit of pause about uh, how people are and how they behave is a really like important thing, especially in like the modern era where everybody is so reactive yep. um, and so quick to just be like, you know, you're a fucking a-hole, you know, and like, that's their like summary of some crazy behavior. And I think it's just like, it's good to just like pause and just, you know, just, just a pause. That's all. So if you could leave the community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take. I love what you just said about pausing, but anything else come to mind? You know, pausing and, you know, you know, kindness and empathy. I mean, I think it's just, it, it goes a long way. We just, we just, we don't know what people's struggles are. And so, you know, there may be a lot of people out there that I, you know, maybe don't like, you know, for some reason or another, they, everything from like, I find them mildly irritating to they've got some like vocal position on something I'm really opposed to. But I think we just, we never know 
kind of the inner state of mind. We never know what their backstory is, like where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, we never, we don't know that nurture element of where they grew up, under what conditions, with what voices in their heads. So, I don't know. It's it's just there's so much that's um, that that's unknown. It's just like great if we can um, uh, approach each other with a little more kindness, a little more empathy, a little more willingness to kind of have those um, deeper conversations about um, what the issue is. Yeah. So in the uh, three minutes that we have left, I want to be respectful of your time, but I can't let you go without having you tell us the game day vagina story. (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. Okay. So I'll try to do it quickly because it has multiple parts to it, but it did start in 2013 when we were at fashion week for the first time. And Lauren had had Jude in June of that. And, you know, remarkably miraculously, of course, three months later, she's like walking the runway and there's a whole story around that too as well. But, um, you know, like most women who have babies, you're very eager to tell your birth story. I had one woman tell me like, you'll never get tired of telling your birth story. And for whatever reason, it's true. Um, so Lauren kind of had gathered us up like the earth goddess that she is. And we're all like, you know, like sitting around her in this loft in New York City. And she's telling about having, you know, giving birth to Jude and about how like, you know, it's just a freaky situation, right? Like your body basically morphs into something that nobody recognizes. And it's, you know, completely transformational. And she said that one of the like the coping mechanisms for this transformation was that she and Jesse kind of had this joke that like, that was actually a different part of her body that was giving birth. You know, it was just kind of like, it was like a, so then I started joking. I was like, yeah, I'm like, you know, like there's different types of vaginas. There's like the childbirth vagina, there's the sexy time vagina and there's like game day vagina, you know, and you basically just want that thing to be like high and tight and like ready to roll, you know? (laughs) This is my thing. I can't even tell you how often I think about, all right, game day vagina time. Like that's, that's really effective for me. So, so yeah, so that was this, like, I even, but the, even like a funny, like aspect of the story is that I wrote a blog post about it because we thought it was so funny and so poignant. And the next chapter of it was that by the time it got written and was ready to be posted by Wazelle, it was actually Thanksgiving weekend. And so think Thanksgiving and Black Friday and kind of where the world goes during that time of year, which is just like, we're so lovey and grateful. And I was all ready to like publish this blog post. And I remember Matt coming to me and she was like, "Um, I don't know how to say this. But I just, like, I don't know, like, it's the right time for the Game Day Vagina post to go up, like, on the Monday before, like, Thanksgiving and, like, Black Friday and everything when we want people to shop. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> it was like this hysterical conversation. We were just like, and I was like, yeah, of course, no, like, yeah, it's just not the right time. And um, so it's still back there in the back end of the Wazelle uh, blog world. Um, so someday we'll have to actually hit publish and uh, make it real. All right. Well, I have an official request in for that. Um, okay. Thank you. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi? Oh gosh. I'm on the Twitter box. Uh, uh, my handle is at Wazel underscore Sally. And I genuinely do, um, check in more than I care to admit and love to have conversations with people about any old thing, whether it's sport or feminism or clothing or design or um, any of the things that um, we've talked about here today. Awesome. Well, I will put all those links in the show notes. Sally, thank you so much. Thank you, Nicole. Have a great day. And thank you so much for having me on. 
And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Danielle. Hi, Danielle. Hi. So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Tell me how you usually spend the first hour of your day. The first hour of my day is almost always spent running. I usually get up about quarter to five, um, get dressed, and then head outside and go for about an either three to four mile run just about every day. Nice. Are you training for anything or is running just something that you like to do? I'm not training for anything right now. I will start tr- at the end of July, start training for um, the to run a sub two hour half marathon. Nice. That's a fun goal. Yes. I'm very nervous, but very excited. I remember the year that that goal like took over my life and it was totally worth it. And I ran like a, it was like a 159.35 or something. It was like just, the race was like such a shit show and I like <laughs> just made that. it. And listen, do you have a, a race picked to, for, yeah. to try? Yes. I'm going to do the Southern Fried Half Marathon and it's on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Oh, that sounds pretty. I have never been to North Carolina, but that sounds lovely. Neither have I. My very big goal in life, uh, well, for running is to run a race in every state. So That's I'm trying awesome. to check off state. So North Carolina, that'll be my checkoff. Well, they have a marathon and half marathon here in Bend. So <laughs> That's... I know the West Coast is going to be the hardest one because it's just so expensive to fly. Totally. Well, but I mean, there's no shortage of race choices. That's for sure, at least. Oh, no, no, not at all. Yeah, I used to use, I mean, I'm not really racing or anything right now or anymore. I don't know. But um, when I was, I used to use it as an excuse to travel too. I remember there was one summer where my friend Amina and I went to Anchorage, Alaska to run a half marathon. We were like, okay, I guess we're going to go on like a glacier cruise tour. Like, what are we doing here? It was amazing. That's and that's my favorite part about it is um for, especially for like the important or longer races my boyfriend will usually come with me and we make it like a whole weekend of seeing stuff. Yeah. And then I run a really long race. <laughs> totally. No, I love it. Um so tell me what you are totally obsessed with right now. <sighs> I think right now I'm kind of totally obsessed with Wegman's donuts. <laughs> oh, okay. How come? I I'm always looking for like I love donuts. And I'm looking for good ones. And like, you know, the chains around here, they're okay. And for a while we had, um, I can't, I think of the name. It's a Southern Donut Company, Krispy Kreme. Unfortunately, they didn't work out up here because Dunkin' Donuts kind of just crushes everyone. Um, So I've started going to Wegmans because their donuts are fairly similar to Krispy Kreme. And Wegmans just recently showed up in the area about two years ago. So I'm slowly discovering all their delicious baked goods. There you go. Yeah. My uh, husband is obsessed with donuts, too. I remember there was one day, this is like a year ago, I was like, you know, I'm really in the mood for donuts. And he looks at me and he goes, um... I always want donuts. And then he, <laughs> he went on this quest to learn how to make vegan donuts. And now, like, I bought him this little fryer and he makes donuts at home. And it's kind of awesome. That's awesome. Right? I know. I'm like, that's a really good hobby. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> What's the strangest or most random job you've ever had? I was an inventory counter when I was in college. So basically, you just go to stores and count their stuff. <laughs> Like an like an outside company would like you would come in to do it just at a different like at different stores. Yes, 
Yes. Okay, that's funny because I used to work at William Snowman. I remember we would shut down the store for a couple days in January and do our own inventory, which is always everyone's like least favorite twenty four hours. And we and we did all different stores. Like we do grocery stores, you do clothing stores. Um, I just remember, and like we used to do Target, and those would only they'd only allow us to count when they were closed, so we could only start counting at ten p.m. at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was just like. But at least they supplied food, so. (laughs) So if I'm ever in a situation where I need to put together some kind of survivalist survivalist team and I need a really good counter, you're the one that I should (laughs) call. Oh, I can I can type numbers like no one's business. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Um, If you have a free afternoon, what's your favorite way to spend it? Uh, Usually reading. Oh, what are you reading right now? Or what's the last thing you were like? Oh my gosh, I'm currently reading it. By Stephen King. Okay, not that is um, not my genre, I, but I hear you. Yes, <laughs> I have a very wide variety of books. Well, one of my grandparents bought me a bunch of Stephen King books when I was a teenager, and I tried to read them, but I just I couldn't get into it as a teenager. He's very descriptive, and that I just wasn't into that back then. So I'm trying to give it another try because I I'm also all about reading books before I see movies, and I've noticed that they're going to be redoing it as a movie. So I was going, I'm trying to read it and I like it more now. I understand more of the detail and getting into it. But generally, if you catch me reading a book, I'm almost always reading about history. That's my favorite subject. Oh, okay. I like history. Any recommendations? Um, I love The Monuments Men. That was one of my favorite history books. I I just, because I never really understood, like, I love World War II. It's my favorite subject. I've read probably like hundreds of books on it, but I'd never heard of them protecting the art and really how important it was that they did do that. That's so interesting. Okay, I'll definitely check that out. Have you read The Boys in the Boat? I have not. Ugh, if you, it's it's historical nonfiction that basically reads like fiction, and it's that same time period, but athletics. It's incredible. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I read it in like a day. I sent it to my dad. It's I, I have no doubt that you would like it. Awesome. So the last question, what's uh, something that you wish people were more open and honest about? Hmm. A lot of things. Really. I know, right? Hence this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I really wish people were more honest and open about um, taking like health, mental health, physical health, just, you know, really wanting to like not just diet or quickly fix things like really going into how hard and like you have to make it a lifetime investment to really be healthy and I think a lot of people are still just way into the quick fixes yeah I agree with you no that's awesome that would be such a good topic to dig into so you are a member of our patreon support squad which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a small and powerful pledge each season that helps to fund the costs of producing the show and I would love for you to share first why you decided to support the show and what you love most about being in our community I think what maybe support is actually something you said in one of the podcasts about if you like something you should figure out ways to support it so and you give an easy way to do it so I went on and I was like you know I really love this podcast it takes my commute which is about 45 minutes each way it makes it so much better <laughs> I was like I should really support this and a lot of my other podcasts that I listen to they just sell like t-shirts or are sponsored by someone so I'll go 
support them that way, but you give the Patreon way. So I was like, you know what? I would love to sign up for that. And I really love the bonus episodes. That's just awesome to have. Ah, well, thanks. Yeah, I at this point, it's like, man, there's over 40 hours of bonus content. Like, there's a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> in case you're not sick of my voice, there's plenty of... <laughs> no, you have, a very, to to. you have a very pleasant voice. So. Oh, you're so funny. I always joke with, with Adam, who, you know, he uh, edits the show. I'm like, man, you must be so sick of listening to me. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, I appreciate that so much. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better through things like this after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. <laughs>